You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to the show. This week we have Bruce Robertson, who many of you would have read in the paper talking about gold plating, Uh, concerns about Australian energy prices. Bruce is the gas analyst for Australasia for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. So Bruce, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, it seems that the politics is heating up behind uh, gas prices with Bill Shorten uh, talking about further needs for regulating gas prices. How have we got to this point? We've got to this point for two fundamental reasons. Uh, the first reason is is that the East Coast has been connected to the global markets via the building of three LNG plants at Gladstone. Now, those three LNG plants have actually meant that the market on the East Coast now is essentially one-third domestic and two-thirds exports. It was a domestic-only market previously. Previously, we paid 3 to $4 dollars a gigajoule for gas. That was very sort of stable price for a very long time up until 2012. Since then, gas prices have essentially tripled. Um, Now, the other reason, the second reason, I said there were two reasons. That's the first reason. The second reason is is that, that fundamentally on the east coast of Australia, we have a cartel of producers. That cartel consists of Shell, Origin, BHP Exxon and Santos. Now those four players, because BHP and Exxon uh, jointly market their gas, so they're actually only one player. Those four players control the pricing of gas on the east coast of Australia, and they have ensured that Australian gas prices are now above global parity. And this is the essential point because we were always told that we would go to global parity, but Australian gas prices are significantly above global parity now. In the past, how were gas prices kept lower than uh, the international spot market? Well, essentially, there was only one market that these people could supply, and that was the domestic market. And prices were kept low because uh, gas originally was just a byproduct of oil production out of out of the Bass Strait, and and really they had to kind of get rid of this byproduct. So they stimulated a market, particularly in Victoria, with uh, you know a domestic market in in heating and and hot water. They stimulated that market to provide an outlet for their gas. So gas prices were historically very low, and it wasn't until you got the LNG export plants being built, which were overbuilt. There were too many built for the, the gas resources we have. Mm. And what, is, yeah, what has occurred is, is that the fields that they rely on, essentially a coal seam gas fields in Queensland, have by and large failed to deliver. 
We've seen this problem occur again and again where well-paid uh, consultants come in and for millions of dollars give reports on traffic numbers for toll roads, for example, and they totally overestimate things to justify the initial investment and in government uh, handouts. Uh, so in the gas industry, I know Santos in particular was the most exposed. Uh, they all built these huge multi-billion dollar plants up in Gladstone and then Santos recognised, heck, these uh, uh, coal seam gas uh, wells aren't producing as much as we expected. Was that just part of the typical industrial uh, realisation of a project or was it uh, perhaps some over-exuberance? I would put it in the extreme over-exuberance category, actually. Um, well, the, the normal way you go about developing these businesses is you do drill out fields and you actually work out properly by supplying the domestic market first, if this business is going to work as an offshore business. Now, what, what happened was a lot of this was generated by a natural event, which is rather bizarre, isn't it? But, but a lot of uh, this investment was generated by the earthquake and subsequent tsunami at, at, at Fukushima, because what that did was that created tremendous demand for, for LNG in Japan, they had to fill a gap of around 25% of their power. The entire electricity system was shut in overnight mm. due to that earthquake. They shut the entire nuclear industry in Japan, not just Fukushima plant. The whole lot got shut down and is only gradually and very slowly reopening now. So what you saw was this enormous stimulation for that they tried to fill that energy gap with gas, with LNG, and prices went, went, went very, very high. Also, gas is linked to oil prices, and oil prices you know, were over $100 a barrel, so the price is very high. And these people saw this amazing opportunity, these, these businesses, they thought at the time, to lock in long-term contracts linked to the oil price. And all they saw were the dollar signs. They didn't see the risk. And the upshot of that is, that the wells that produce in Queensland were meant to produce for between $2.20 and $2.70 a gigajoule, and they're actually producing at $3.50 to $8.50. So the top end of the range that they had as their, their, their top price that they'd be producing for is well below the bottom end of the range that they're actually producing for. So this hmm. has been an unmitigated disaster in terms of costs. Now, what you had then is the oil price fell down to below $50, and suddenly these projects were in an awful lot of trouble. That oil price, the, the fall in the oil price, how was that linked to coal seam gas and the fracking that was going on in America? That link between uh, those two markets is something I think listeners would appreciate understanding. Well, yeah, we've got to be a little bit careful because the, the frac gas in America is actually shale gas and it is significantly different from coal seam gas. It has different geological properties and, and, and is, is, it is significantly different. The process, the fracking process is quite similar to extracted, but um, environmentally coal seam gas, of course, is far, far more dangerous to do because it's far shallower. Shale is much deeper and the problems that arise from shale tend to take a lot longer to emerge, whereas coal seams are much shallower and the problem's much more immediate. 
um, that they cause environmentally. So there, there are fundamental differences in those two things. But economically speaking, what you saw in America, you had existing infrastructure, very good existing infrastructure, very cheap pipeline infrastructure that, that meant that the shale fields could open up very easily. The same was not true and still today is not true in Australia where we have extraordinarily expensive pipeline infrastructure um, and as I said, it's a fundamentally different process, the shale process. The shale process tends to come with a lot more oil. You get a lot of oil as well as the gas and that makes the gas you get out very cheap because they sell the oil on the international market and the gas is very cheap whereas coal seam gas is just the gas. You don't get any oil out of that process. Um, and what what um, what what we found is is that we have even had in Australia some fields totally fail. Origins Ironbark field last year totally failed, and they wrote off three hundred and seventy million on that one field alone. So as the posturing was going on to get these gas terminals built up in Gladstone, Queensland, so uh, uh, these gas companies could export uh, into the Japanese market as quickly as possible. Uh, there was a lot of conjecture about Australia's uh, resource rents policy uh, and, the, and the minerals resource rents. Uh, of course, uh, uh, the super profits tax had been overturned and, and I think the minerals resource rent tax had just been implemented. But uh, how was the gas industry playing the field, if you like, at that time? Because they must have seen all this attention on minerals and uh, not much on uh, gas and bang, they've come in and, and made the most of all those distractions. There are two issues here, Carl. The, the, the first is obviously the royalties issue. Now, this industry promised billions of dollars in royalties. And even if you look at the Queensland budget, you know, they were expecting hundreds of millions of dollars of royalties, some $600 million in the early years of, this, of, this, of, of these LNG projects. Now, they've never delivered even a tenth of that number. Uh, so, so these have been hugely disappointing in terms of, of, of royalties, these projects. Um, that's the first point. And the second point is, is that basically they use this, this energy policy vacuum to promote projects without domestic gas reservation policy. Now, they actually said in their projects, very, very clearly stated in this Gladstone LNG environmental impact statement, which is part owned by Santos, they stated in that impact statement that their LNG plants would not affect the domestic market because they would be getting all their gas from the new fields that they would open up, the new coal seam gas fields that would open up in Queensland, in existing permitted areas in Queensland. Now, nothing could be further from the truth because what has happened in essence is, is that those fields have, have not lived up to expectations and they have got gas out of uh, their Moomba fields in, in, in South Australia that traditionally supplied Sydney and what you saw is the Sydney to Moomba pipeline instead of flowing from Moomba to Sydney now flows from Sydney to Moomba and, um, and they also got gas out of the Bass Strait 
such to the extent that late last year, there was a significant time period where the Bass Strait was supplying all of Victoria's needs, all of Tasmania's needs, about half of South Australia's needs, all of New South Wales' needs, part of Queensland's needs, and also exporting. So the traditional sources of gas in Australia that kept gas cheap on the east coast of Australia have now been exported. And and what um, what you've seen is, is that this industry has, has used these LNG export plants to reprice their domestic gas to above international parity prices. We're talking with Bruce Robertson, gas analyst for Australasia for the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. And uh, Bruce, uh, this issue of uh, a domestic gas reserve, uh, is that what other nations do to ensure that uh, they can have gas prices that doesn't include the the transportation costs and the add-ons that go on with international trade? It most certainly is. It most certainly is. Most of them just, just do it very simply. They have a gas reservation policy at a price, and usually that price is well below international parity. They either have that or they have a national interest test. In the US, before you open up a export facility, you, you have to actually have this national interest test that, that says that it's not going to affect the domestic market. Now, if you look in the US, gas prices are around about uh, just under half what they are here. In Qatar, they're, they're around about that sort of one third what they are here. Now, they're the two other major exporting nations against which we compete. And they're the two people which we should compare ourselves to. Even within Australia, on the west coast of Australia, there is a domestic gas reservation policy. They pay $5 a gigajoule for gas. On the east coast of Australia, we have no energy policy in gas. And essentially what that means is that we're paying between 10 and, uh, if you believe the ACCC, that will soon rise to that $15 a level for contract gas. So about a 50% increase we're looking at in the short term for gas. This will inevitably send a lot of our export competing manufacturing industries broke. There's no right way to put it. What we're going to see is another wave of deindustrialization of Australia over the next you know, 12 to 24 months. You know, it depends on when these companies' gas contracts run out. If they have to contract at the higher levels, they're simply not globally competitive. We've already seen that uh, with uh, Incitec Pivot, which made the decision uh, last year to, to build a, a fertiliser factory in the US rather than build one in Australia to supply Australian farmers with fertiliser. Now, we, we produce the gas here. Uh, we've got the raw materials to do, to do uh, that process here. There's no reason why that shouldn't occur in Australia other than uncompetitive gas and, to a lesser extent in that case, electricity prices.
for 3CR listeners, they'll be very interested to understand how the gas price acts as the baseline for all energy prices in Australia uh, and and from that, uh, the influence that has on renewable energy policy. There's a lot of blame game going on uh, in this space, uh, Bruce Robertson. Can you explain how gas acts as the the baseline pricing system? Oh, look, gas is tremendously important, not only you know, for gas consumers within Australia, but it's also tremendously important for electricity consumers. And the reason for that is very simple. Gas is the last player into the market. Effectively, gas sets the price because it's the highest cost producer of electricity in the national electricity market. And so as it's the highest cost producer, it's the last one to come into the market and it sets the price um, such that the ACCC has said that for every $1 increase in, in, in per gigajoule increase in gas, it affects the wholesale electricity price by $11. Now, that's an enormous effect. Effectively, what they're saying is if we had prices in, uh, you know, wholesale electricity at the prices at the moment around that 70 to $80 level, megawatt hour. If we had the prices that they pay on the West Coast, we would be paying $55 a megawatt hour less for our electricity. Now, that's a stunning amount <laughs> less. Uh, we'd be paying very little for wholesale electricity, essentially, if we had a domestic gas reservation at a reasonable price, like $5, like they do in in Western Australia. And from this, uh, renewables have been blamed for these high energy prices. Uh, Yes, adding a lot of controversy. Uh, Some say, look, perhaps gas is behind uh, the destruction of four prime ministers. Gas and basically royalty uh, royalty arrangements over gas have a large, large political effect. Uh, I think if you have a look, uh, if you have a look at uh, energy prices generally in Australia, gas is right up there as a cause of of high high electricity prices. We've talked a lot about the international pricing arrangements and the, and these three big uh, Gladstone power plants there, but what about the role of, of distribution and these gas pipelines? Uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, consolidation uh, in that sort of market space and uh, uh, this influence of monopoly rents is coming back to haunt us in this space who are recently in uh, an article on news.com.au regarding this very issue and uh, the Chinese ownership of these monopolies. Yeah, look, it, it's it, it's deeply concerning from a strategic aspect. I mean, essentially what, what Australia's done in, in gas transmission is that it used to largely be owned by by governments. Um, then it was privatised, and the APA group owned an awful lot of it. And that group is now under takeover by CKI, which already is a substantial player in gas transmission. CKI is uh, essentially a Hong Kong Chinese-based company, and we all know that Hong Kong is increasingly under the orbit of centralised. Chinese government. Gemina is another company in this space and they are half owned by the Chinese government. 
So what we're seeing in this space is we're seeing a consolidation down to essentially where the East Coast transmission network will be largely Chinese government owned. I think that that is not really what privatisation was meant to be about. Strangely, and for reasons only known to the ACCC, who seem to have forgotten about one of the C's in their moniker, the competition one, they waived this takeover through. It is with the Treasurer at the moment. I think that, um, to be blunt with you, I think that uh, our Secret Services will be uh, raising significant security issues uh, with this takeover. I don't think it's in the national interest in any way, shape or form to allow this to occur. However, stranger things have happened. If CKI get, you know, it seems like it's it's a foregone conclusion, but they're going to control 68% of gas transmission and distribution pipelines in Victoria, 86% in South Australia and 72% in Queensland. What sort of profiteering is APA making and the potentials for that to expand if uh, CKI gains ownership uh, seem immense and a further major threat to Australian pricing? Look, there's there's two essential issues here. The first is regulation or or lack thereof, and the second is this funny thing called dork, which we will talk about. But the first one, if we just look at the first one, first of all, in the US, all major transmission pipelines uh, between states are fully regulated as to price and volume. In other words, you can find out if there's volume available, it's transparent, and you can ship at a given price. In Australia, that's simply not the case. And what in Australia happens is is that there's limited disclosure of price and availability, and they are not regulated. Most of the pipelines are not regulated in essence. Now, the limited disclosure that there is is overseen by the national gas rules. However, In many cases, even those are totally, totally, uh, uh, if you like, disregarded. I can take the example of Gemina. Gemina uh, has has just completed a pipe to to link the Northern Territory to Queensland, to link the Northern Territory essentially with the whole East Coast gas market. Now, that pipeline has a 15-year derogation. In other words, it doesn't have to comply with the national gas laws or the national gas rules. It doesn't have to disclose the price. If it wants to put the price up, it only has to give notification to the Northern Territory government. Already, its stated uh, tariff is extraordinarily expensive. The stated tariff is more than twice what the AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, determined was a reasonable rate of return. Already they're charging Mm. over twice that and they are allowed for the next 15 years to up that tariff to whatever they want, essentially, with no comeback. And if someone tries to find out what other people are paying, they can't. If If a shipper wants to challenge the price rise, they can't. So it, it is essentially a total monopoly and total monopolies should be regulated. And in Australia, 
in gas pipelines, they're not. That is extraordinary. They sound like some of the most uh, one-eyed uh, regulations I've ever heard of. Does that sort of thing go on uh, around the world? Oh, you'd be scratching your head thinking any sovereign government would allow such rulings. Uh, no, it doesn't go, go on anywhere around the world. And, and the extent of it is, is, is simply mind-blowing because it doesn't only extend to the existing pipeline. If, for example, the Northern Territory is a major new shale province and if you know it really goes gangbusters there and we start tracking the whole of the northern territory what you will see is that the, the excess returns because as i said the amo has determined what is a reasonable rate of return and gemini makes twice that on their existing pipeline over the 15 years they would make an additional 368 million above reasonable rate of return. If they duplicate the pipeline, which they're looking at doing um, with a bigger pipeline, actually making a bigger pipeline alongside uh, the existing one, and if that's filled up to capacity, they could overcharge by up to $5 billion over the 15-year period. Essentially what we've done with Gemina in the Northern Territory is we've given away, we've given away a very substantial chunk of the economic value of gas, onshore gas, in the Northern Territory. We've just given it away to the governments of Singapore and the governments of China. It sounds like a good way to summarise Australia's uh, complete energy policy, uh, minerals and uh, oil and gas. Uh, it's just a handout for multinationals. And uh, what's worse is that we have this ridiculous system of depreciated, optimised replacement costs that enable such companies to, to write off uh, uh, depreciation levels at extravagant rates so they never have to pay tax. It's an incredible system. that It only exists in Australia, and it's one of the reasons that makes these pipelines companies so extraordinarily profitable. If you'd been an investor in APA Group when it first floated, you would have made 15 times your money. And one of the reasons is this depreciated optimised replacement cost or DORC method of depreciation. It only exists in Australia. A normal depreciation schedule is just, you know, you have a a, a, a cost and you depreciate that over the useful life for the asset. What Dork allows you to do is you can have a 30-year-old pipeline that essentially is at its virtually at the end of its life and you can say, well, actually, I'm going to treat that as a new pipeline and I'm going to depreciate it as if I replaced it like for like today and optimised it. So... I will depreciate on that fictitious figure. And this allows these companies to make extraordinary profits out of a very basic industry. It's why CKI out of Hong Kong, who is run by one of Hong Kong's foremost entrepreneurs, looked all around the world at places to invest in infrastructure. And being located in Asia, you think you'd choose somewhere in Asia that was fast growing like Thailand or Vietnam or maybe China or Hong Kong itself. But no, he comes to Australia. And he comes to Australia principally because 
the profits you can make under the depreciated optimised replacement cost scheme of depreciating pipelines are super profits. The horrific thing is that that replacement cost valuation can be uh, amplified as well. There's no real transparency on those valuations. So uh, the game of mates continues with uh, any sort of number plucked out of the sky that then gets uh, used to uh, apply your depreciation against. That's right. That's why it's called DORC. It's uh, de- depreciate optimised replacement cost and the optimised is via some consultant's report that says we need this type of pipeline and it's going to have these bells and whistles on it and um, obviously there's an incentive for that consultant to write the price up because the higher the optimised cost is the higher the depreciation cost can be claimed on this fictitious figure. It's an entirely fictitious system that only exists in Australia. It should be abolished and we really have to, you know, if we're talking about being globally competitive in anything, that is a system that just has to go. So the, the big problem is the ACCC is viewing these monopolies as if they were a market. And they keep coming in with these, oh, we need a market-based solution, when, as I said, there's no market. And, and it's this thing that... that, that it's got in their psyche that, that somehow or other you can create a market where there isn't one. And as soon as you start calling uh, things markets, people assume that, you know, by, for example, by putting more uh, supply into a market, you'll get a lower price. Well, you don't where there's an oligopoly. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce Robertson from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, thanks so much for joining us here on The Renegades. I hope we can continue to reveal these details over time because uh, excellent work you do. So thanks again, Bruce Robertson. Thank you. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.